Okay, as we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For sure it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, we're used to the idea of superheroes having weaknesses. Probably the most obvious one being Superman and his kryptonite. But it seems that every superhero at, at one point in, uh, in whatever show you're watching, uh, things are looking pretty grim and things are looking like they're down. And then, of course, they always win in the end. Well, you know, it's one thing to uh, see that kind of imperfection in a superhero. It's something different when we're considering that in the Son of God or God Himself. And that's really what we're looking at. We're looking at Jesus Christ as we look at it this morning. We're looking at Him providing salvation and experiencing death. At this point, He's mentioned that several times in the passage. If we look back in chapter 1 and verse 3, it mentions the fact that after making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. When we get to verse 14, talking about angels, it says that they are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Early in chapter 2, it encourages us not to neglect the salvation that is provided for us. And then as we come on into this passage, as we get to where we finished up last week in verse 9, it says, We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So the point that He's made several times up to this point is that Jesus, through tasting death Himself, has tasted it for us and provided this salvation for us. Now, the question here is, is that a weakness? Is that an imperfection? The answer in the passage is unequivocally no. You see, while it's okay for Superman to have a weakness toward kryptonite, it's really not okay for the Son of God to fall short in anything. This is actually a problem. In fact, the Jewish community to this day has a real strong struggle with this. The Bible says it's a stumbling block for them, the cross is. Several years ago when I was in Palm Springs, we were going down through this uh, open market. They block off the streets at both ends and you can go on people selling food and all kinds of stuff. We went to the same thing again this year. This year, they had a different rabbi, but the question, ask the rabbi booth was still there. This time, I didn't bother asking the rabbi a question. Last time, I remember asking him a question about Isaiah 53 and Christ. He got a little bit animated about that. I remember him telling me this. He says, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be peace on earth. There's going to be no more sickness, no more famines, no more poverty, no more hunger, no more any of these things. He says, do you see that being the present case in this world? I said, no. He says, well, then Jesus wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah isn't here. Because when he comes, it's going to be like that. And so this whole idea to them of the Messiah dying, they just can't hardly get their minds around it. Think of even the disciples. How many times did Jesus tell the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem 
and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, and they're going to put me to death, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead. And the disciples would say, so who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> All the time. It was like a, right over their head. Their idea of what was going to happen when the Messiah comes, it just didn't have any place to fit this death, this suffering, inside in, into the Messiah's life. Now, we know from looking back and from what Jesus taught us and the apostles after that, and the, the pro- prophecies of the Old Testament before that, we know that when the Jesus comes back the second time to set up His kingdom, it will be like that. There will be world peace. There will be an end of famines and poverty and all those things. There will be no hunger. It will be a great time in Jesus' kingdom. But we also recognize that even in the Old Testament, there were passages like Isaiah chapter 53, where it says He was wounded for our transgressions. Where it talks about this suffering that the Son of Man would go through, that this Messiah would have to endure on our behalf. And really what this passage is about right here is answering that question. The writers or the the audience that the writer is writing to, he's recognizing are going to have a struggle with this. If Jesus died, if he suffered death, he already answered the question of him becoming a man. We looked at that last week. If Jesus became a man, does that make him lower than the angels? Does that make him less of a savior? And he talked about no he became a man. Remember, it's not to, not to angels that God put the world in subjection to. It was to man. For a little while, he's lower than the angels, so he can come down here and suffer death for us. And then he's going to redeem man to his rightful position of glory and honor. It's superior to the angels. And he talked about angels being the servants of men. But, as we look at it this week, he's going a step farther. And he's saying, what about the death of Jesus? Does the fact that Jesus died show a weakness in him? Does the fact that Jesus suffered? Does that show a flaw? Does that make him lesser? And that's exactly where we see in verse 10. Notice how it starts. It says, for it was fitting. That's the question. Is it fitting that the Son of God would experience death? And that's the whole point that he's making through this passage. He's saying it was fitting. It was appropriate. It is right that the Son of Man would suffer death. It didn't make him less of a Savior. In fact, read on. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he's saying that not only is it fitting that Jesus suffer and still be our Savior, it's actually fitting that He is made perfect through that suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that He was imperfect before. It's not talking about character or moral qualifications. This word perfect is often used in the Old Testament to speak of the Old Testament priesthood, somebody being able to perform the the vocation of a priest. In other words, they're perfectly qualified to be the high priest. And so that's what is speaking of Jesus. Jesus has been perfect forever. He's perfect in His character. He's perfect in His righteousness, His holiness. He's always been of perfect moral character. But in order to accomplish the salvation of men, He had to go to the cross and suffer. So it was incomplete. It was imperfect in that sense. But Jesus, it says, through His suffering is able to be not only morally perfect, but let's call it vocationally perfect. Now he's completely fulfilling the role of the high priest in our life to provide for our forgiveness of sins. And so he's saying, look, it's completely fitting that he should be made perfect, he should be completed through suffering. Now skip ahead with me a little bit. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 starts out, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So it starts off in verse 10 saying it's fitting 
by the time he gets to verse 17 and he's explained a few things, he says this had to be done. This is the only way to take care of this problem. And the problem, of course, is sin. Sin that we've participated in brings death. And that's the sentence that is hanging over us. That's the leverage that Satan has in our life. And God says the only way, the only way to get you out from underneath that sin was for Jesus to take that sin, our sin upon himself, and die in our place as a substitutionary death, which he talked about last week, him tasting death for everyone, so that he could, as he said in verse 10, bring many sons to glory. I love the way that he said that. He's talking about our salvation, but he says he's bringing many sons to glory. In other words, he's reestablishing us back in that rightful position. It's, it's picturing not only your forgiveness of sins, but you're, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be ruling and reigning with him someday. You're going to have a glorious position. It's not just a, not just a place absent of sin. It's a place of positive holiness and positive purpose and meaning in our lives. That's what Jesus is, is bringing us to. He's bringing many of us to that kind of glory. So as we look at the passage, the point that he's pointing out is, very simply, that he is our perfect Savior. The death of Jesus Christ, far from diminishing him as a Savior, actually qualifies him and perfects him as our Savior. As we look at that this morning, we're going to look at a couple of different things. We're going to look at his accomplishments, and we're also going to look at what we learn from those about who he is. So the first thing that we're going to see is his accomplishments. He accomplishes, first of all, it mentions sanctification. Because notice, as we read in verse 11, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... And then he quotes three different passages from the Old Testament. One in Psalms 22, Isaiah, and others... And so he's going to quote these quotations from the Old Testament showing that, look, this is consistent with what the Old Testament said. But the accomplishment that he accomplishes in our life is sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word that means to set apart. Be set apart to be made holy is what it means. In the Old Testament, you see God doing that with like the priesthood. He, he sets the family of Levi apart from the rest of the tribes to be the priests. God's taking and setting them aside for himself. So it's the idea of being set apart for holiness. And that's what God is accomplishing in our lives. When God sent His Son to that cross to pay for our sins, He put all of our sins upon His Son, separating us from our sins. And so that is, in fact, actually how we're seen even now. You realize that? When God looks at you, through your faith in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, He is not seeing your sin. He's not looking upon your sin. We've already been separated from that. Theologians usually point to a position and a practice. Right, positionally, if you read the book of Ephesians, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are placed in Christ. We're now in Him. So when God the Father looks upon us, He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're now in Christ. So positionally, we already are sanctified to God. We're set apart to Him. That's what, when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ, not our own sinfulness. Practically, what we see in our life is that we still get tripped up. We still stumble. We still have struggles with our attitudes and our actions. And so practically, our life doesn't always practically line up with our position in Christ. And that's really the goal. In fact, again, when you read through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are spent on telling us who we are in Christ. We're chosen by God, adopted by God. We have all these blessings in Christ. And then he says, now you know what you need to do? You need to live up to who you are. You're in Christ. Act like it. And then the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians are doing, telling us how to do exactly that. How to live out this new life in Christ. Well, positionally, we are already sanctified in Christ. But 
But practically, we're kind of progressively becoming sanctified. We're, we're getting more and more in our life, living more and more like Christ day after day after day as we grow closer to Him. But positionally, we're already there. God has sanctified us. He set us apart for Himself to be holy. Not only is we, do we see sanctification, but we see emancipation. Emancipation. When I think of emancipation, I think of Abraham Lincoln. Don't you? Because he's the one that brought freedom to the slaves. Uh, him being the leader of that, I guess you should say a whole a lot of people laid down their lives for this issue. But Abraham Lincoln was was in charge and led to that that we'd have this emancipation of the slaves that they would be set free. Well, in the book of Hebrews, he tells us that we have the same thing. We have that same kind of emancipation. We've been set free also. And how did that happen? Well, he had to overcome the adversary. Just like it took a civil war, unfortunately, to free the slaves in our country, it, it took a war to free us as well. But the enemy in this case is Satan himself. Notice as we begin reading down in verse 14, it says, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood..." He likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so you see he's talking about it here and he says, look, he has emancipated us, he set us free. In order to do that, he had to overcome the devil. How did he do that? Through his death. Through his death, he took on, he had to take on our nature. He had to take on, just like we have, flesh and blood. He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to take on our nature so he could experience death. In doing so, he would conquer the one who has the power of death, which is Satan, and set us free. You know, the Bible makes it very clear right from the beginning that we're under the curse of death. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He said, the day you eat that fruit, you will die. Satan said, no, you won't. And they found out that you will. Now, God in His mercy did not make them die that day. They died spiritually. They were separated from God by being kicked out of the garden. In the Bible, you can find that there's three different kinds of death that are spoken of in our behalf. One is a spiritual, a physical death, which we usually think of. That's when your soul or your spirit departs from your body. Two is the spiritual death. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2. It says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of our sins, we're separated from God until we get saved. When we get saved, then we're brought near. Christ died to bring us to God. If we're still spiritually dead, separated from God, when we die physically, it becomes permanent. And that's an eternal death. And those are the three deaths that the Bible speaks of. God told Adam and Eve, He says, you will die the day that you eat that fruit. Well, that day they did die spiritually. They were kicked out of the garden in the presence of God. But God had mercy on them. Rather than making them die physically that day, He allowed an animal to die in their place. And He took the skins of that animal to cover their guilt, their nakedness that they didn't realize they had before. Now all of a sudden they're feeling vulnerable and guilty. God took the skins of that animal and covered their nakedness, covered their guilt and their shame through that act of mercy. And that act of mercy has continued all the way to the cross through animals and the innocent dying for the guilty to provide a covering for our sin until Jesus Christ came in the flesh and blood and died Himself. Finally, not just covering our sin, but completely taking it away. But mankind was told right from the get-go, if you sin against God, here's the one rule in the garden, don't eat from that tree. I don't even think there was anything magical about the tree. It's just the fact that they rebelled against God in doing it. And so it was sin. It was disobedience. But he says, you eat that, you die. Well, they died. They ate it. They died. And we see that pattern all through, all through history. Uh, we sin and we die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 says, the soul who sins, it shall die. 
In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible, Old Testament, New Testament makes it very clear the result of sin in our lives is death. We suffer death. But you know what? Jesus overcame death. Now here's the same kind of thing. We're positionally in one place and we're practically in another. We still suffer death. We suffer physical death down here for now, but there's the whole resurrection that's coming and we will be raised back to life. When we die, our soul goes to be with God. And then at the resurrection, our body catches up with our soul and we're reunited and we're glorified. And we'll spend forever in eternal life and with our body and soul, material and immaterial as they say about ourselves. Jesus Christ has set us free from that death. One commentator said the big question for all the world is they ask this, has anybody ever cheated death? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. Jesus Christ overcame death. He experienced death. Three days rose again from the dead to exercise power over death. He gained the victory. The second question is almost as important. Did he leave a path for me to follow? <laughs> well, absolutely, he is that path for us to follow. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. So he is that path. You see, he's emancipated us from under the slavery of Satan. The Bible talks about us being fearful of death. This is one of the things that the Bible frees us from. I love that song, In Christ Alone. My favorite part of that song, No guilt in life, no fear in death. It's the result of the whole rest of the song leading up to that point. But here's the final conclusion. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Now, I've done plenty of things to be guilty of, but you know what? No guilt in life. I'm done with it. Christ paid for all those things. When God looks at me, He doesn't see those things. The Bible says your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Well, if God's not going to remember them, I'm not going to dig them up anymore either. At least I try not to. So he, he accomplished for us emancipation. We're out from under the bondage of Satan because of what Christ is going to do. And when Christ returns the next time, he's going to seal the deal. Now, lastly, it says in his accomplishments within this passage, we see sanctification. We see uh, that we are set apart to God. Emancipation, we're set free from the bondage of death that Satan has over us. And then finally it says uh, this idea of propitiation. Propitiation, very important word. Now this word has the idea of paying a price, kind of like a ransom, but it has another concept added to it, and that is the idea of deliverance from wrath. In other words, by Christ's sacrificial death in our place, His substitutionary death for us, we are delivered out from underneath the wrath of God. This is something that is often overlooked. Until we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches clearly all through it, in fact, all over it, that we are underneath the wrath of God. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7, we find John the Baptist warning the leaders, warning, calling the people to repent. And the religious leaders who were hypocrites came along to see what John was up to. And John asked him, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, he acknowledged there is a wrath that's coming and we need to be delivered from it. Jesus himself, when we get to John chapter 3 verse 36, would say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We are underneath the wrath of God. That's the problem with sin. The penalties, the curses that are attached to sin are because we've offended a holy God. And God, if He's just, 
cannot but punish sin. He can't just overlook it. And so it leaves us underneath the wrath of God. The whole reason that Jesus came was not just to set us a good example. He didn't die on the cross to show you how much He loves you. He died on the cross because He loves you and because you needed it. Unless He dies and pays for our sin, we pay for it ourselves. And that's the wrath of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, it also says that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you that this is a very small sample. If you look up the word wrath in the Bible, there is a lot of occurrences of this word. When you get to the book of Revelation, when it is actually talking about the time when God comes and pours out His wrath upon sinful mankind who refuses to repent and to trust in Christ. Eleven times in the book of Revelation alone, from chapter 6 on, it will talk about that being a time period where God is pouring out His wrath upon the earth, upon these people who refuse to repent of their sins. Now that's a time period that is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are delivered from, that He didn't destine us for that, because through faith in Christ we're destined for greater things, this eternal life. But you know, that's, that's the whole point. That all sounds very negative, but you know what? It's really positive in that that's what we're delivered from. That's what we don't have to go through. We don't have to experience. We don't have to remain under the wrath of God. As soon as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from the wrath of God because of that word propitiation. He has rescued us. Wow, that should just cause some serious excitement on our behalf. If we could really get a grasp of what we're headed for without Christ, we would so treasure the salvation that we have provided for us. Because God has delivered us out from under His own wrath. Okay, so we see the accomplishments that Jesus makes. Jesus is far from being an inferior Savior. He is perfected in His being our Savior uh, through His suffering. Because He completed the task. Now, not only do we see what He accomplished, but we also see what He is. First of all, he is accessible. I love this through this passage. Look at the Old Testament quotations that he quotes there. It says in verse 19, as he's quoting the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. And so it's looking at the relationship between the Savior and us. And the point that he's making is that Jesus, by coming and taking on human flesh, is our Savior. He delivered us. It basically says he didn't come to save angels. You know, because angels don't have the physical bodies or spiritual beings. So he didn't come to save angels. He came to save man. He came to save Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants are flesh and blood, so he needed to take on flesh and blood to be their deliverer. But in these passages that he quoted, he's showing that that's consistent. He's saying, look, it's consistent for Jesus to do this because the Redeemer, the one that sanctifies them, came from God. And the ones who need sanctifying came from God. They were created by God. And that's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Why did he take on flesh and blood? Because he needed to come and save his brothers. What is a brother? They're accessible. They're somebody you're close to, you have a relationship with. He also, he also talks about, it says, I and the children that God has given me. And so in that time, again, talking about the Messiah, but it's talking about us not as brothers, but as children whom God has given to him. Again, somebody that's close, family relationships. So we're accessible. And that's what Jesus, Jesus came down and took on flesh and blood and died in our place. So he is accessible. He once told his disciples, he used another term. He said, friends, I've, I've called you my friends because I let you know my plans. 
In other words, he was accessible to them. And they were lived with him for three years. And so he's accessible. Not only is he accessible, it says that he's faithful. As we look up at verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you see, in this passage, it points out that he is not only accessible, he's also faithful. Now, he's faithful, I think, in both directions. I was looking at this saying, well, what does it talk about? It does say that he's faithful in service to God. So he's faithful in his service to God. As our high priest, he's representing us before God. He's faithful to us. So he can be trusted. He can be depended upon. So he is faithful. And then lastly, it mentions that he is merciful. Merciful. And I love in verse 18, because it says, he, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he has suffered, he is able to help. You know, I find myself, well, like when I talked to Tom the other day at the gas station, I feel for him. I can't imagine what it's like to go through what he's going through. I'm, I try to be understanding with what he's experiencing. But at the same time, I recognize that I don't understand. Do you know what I mean? I, I, haven't, I haven't lost my wife. I can't imagine what that would be like. But I want to be comforting. I want to be encouraged when somebody else has suffered something that I haven't. I still want to be helpful. I want to be... I'm trying to be understanding, right? But the fact of the matter is, if I haven't experienced something similar, uh, I can be understanding, but I really don't understand until I've been in their shoes. The point that this is making is, look, Jesus has been in our shoes. He's endured the suffering uh, at a level that we won't, that we haven't. He's endured our suffering and so much more. I know what it's like to feel the guilt of my sin. I don't know what it's like to bear the sin of the world. I know what it's like to face temptation. I don't know what it's like to go one-on-one against Satan. And he does. And so he took all of our suffering plus upon himself so that no matter what we're going through, he understands. He knows. In fact, that word there, help, a lot packed in that little word. That, that word actually means to run to the cry of a child. You know, I got a glimpse of that. I remember Lisa got pregnant with Tim and we had our first child. Now, I was greatly attached to my, to my son. First couple days... She was in the hospital, and I go get off work and run right to the hospital and get in there. I couldn't wait to get to the hospital and hold that little that little guy. But I I, I grew to appreciate that mothers have something deep there that is uh, amazing. There was times when he was newly born, and when he would cry, just the sound of his cry would trigger physical changes in her body, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. There's just like something physically even, naturally, inside of her. There's a connection. There's no connection. The umbilical cord was cut. There's not a, there's not a physical connection there anymore. But somehow, the physical, just the sound of his cry, even in the distance, will trigger things in her body to provide the needs that he has at that moment. And I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And that's exactly what is talking about right here, about Christ and His affection for us. That when we cry, He responds. When we cry, He feels it. When we cry, He runs to it. How can you get a better, a perfect Christ without that? How, if He didn't suffer, if He didn't go through that, He could be understanding, but could He really understand what it's like to be in our shoes? But that's exactly the point. He took on that flesh and blood. He experienced that. And now He knows exactly what it feels like. And He runs to our cry. Well, he's going to elaborate on that a little bit when we get up to Hebrews chapter 4. 
In verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. Now notice the verse 15 is what he, he did for us. He, he's able to sympathize with us because he went through what we go through. Because of that, we can enter with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Having overcome temptation himself, he has intense desire to help us in our times of temptation. So as we look at our perfect Savior, we see that He accomplished for us sanctification. He set us apart to God. He emancipated us, set us free from the sin and the dominion that Satan holds over us. He did this by, through propitiation, by delivering us out from underneath the wrath of God. In doing that, He is accessible to us, He's faithful to us, and He's merciful as our High Priest. I think he made the argument very effectively. Christ is our Redeemer, is our Savior. He wasn't diminished by His suffering for our sins. He was perfected in it.